Warning, this episode contains depictions of childhood sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Graphic Support Group, a mindful podcast for the design industry and the self, where empathy and the creative cloud meet. Join us as we delve into the mind and soul of graphic design, from PSDs to PTSD. This is Graphic Support Group. It's James. It's Drew. And we're back for another uh, really deep episode of um, Graphic Support Group. We have Kevin Yuan Kit Lowe, who designs under the uh, moniker Loki. Um, Kevin is a designer and activist working in Montreal, and he works under the studio name Loki, as I just mentioned where he works on the intersections of graphic design, cultural production, and social change. Um, I love that term, cultural production. Um, We find his work super powerful and also really challenges the potentials for design and politics in many ways, but also his work just looks rad. Um, So we're (laughs) excited to have him on the podcast today, mainly to speak about his life experiences and writings, which he's slated to publish in a book called Design Against Design. Uh, So welcome, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining. We are uh we have a lot of <laughs> I feel like we have the most like heavy questions we've asked, but not not you know, mostly with regard to like politics and stuff. So hopefully we'll get for into sure. a groove. <laughs> yeah. We 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 have like kind of more like uh you know, like we wrote a bunch of stuff that we're like like that's like phrased very specifically and we're like we, we need to just kind of be more free-flowing with this conversation hopefully yeah. than like than that but uh yeah well we're, we're excited to talk you are super generous in sharing your manuscript so i think that's why we're we have so much to respond to uh mm-hmm. we really love your writing by the way um thank you but i guess we can start off on a little lighter note um how are you feeling about design today Oof. um about design today i'm glad i've been like having a hard time of it uh i don't know like february in montreal um for those that might be aware is is like the hardest month of the year the it's longest like summer month of the right <laughs> no summers are amazing Summer like we have actually really beautiful summers but the middle of february is really bad and i've had like personally a pretty rough one so I'm just happy when I can actually get a bit of work done during the day. And I did manage to do that today. So I do feel good. Um, but just little bits, you know, of, of stuff here and there and trying to move things forward. So I'm not feeling particularly excited, but I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm moving things forward because I have some great projects that I'm working on, but it's just like, it's been, it's been hard to focus on that. I've been going through some stuff and like, so just like pushing through that. Uh, I feel pretty good about that today. Yeah. Actually, that's a really good point because I feel like we're, no one is talking, or not no one, but people aren't really talking about that, especially with the winter and with like the last two years. 
compounded into this thing. And I feel like I've been feeling this a lot lately too, but I keep being like, it's just an excuse. Everybody else is doing fine. Why can't you like, but, but no, like, no, I don't, I don't think everyone's doing fine, you know? And I've, so I've come weird, to accept though, right? that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know I, if I want my clients to hear this, but like, I'm literally only able to work like three hours a day, you know, maybe four. Um, and like, I, I write an email and I'm exhausted, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, yeah. It's hard. It's, hard. It, it, it it's a really, really strange, confusing time in so many ways. And I think it's just bizarre that so many people are like presenting, you know, like when the pandemic started, at least on social media, it was like, okay, let's all take a pause from like pretending mm-hmm. we're all doing great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause like mm-hmm. pretending you're doing great is something everybody does all the time. But like, there was a moment where it was like, okay, like we're all going to stop pretending yes. for a bit and just like, you know, whatever. But now everybody's like, I guess we got to go back to pretending again. Cause, <laughs> cause well, I'm I mean, bored of not pretending. <laughs> I mean, on some levels, you know, like hopefully things are getting a little bit better pandemic wise, but then, you know, yeah. like wars brewing. Yeah. <laughs> no, not even oh, so the world's a mess, you know, we should all, I don't know. Yeah. I agree with the, that kind of like trying to not pretend as much, you know? So I'm just like, when people ask me, I know it's a bit of a downer, but I'm like, yeah, I'm having a rough time, but I'm, I'm trying, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's important to like say that because I feel like most people would just say everything's going well. I uh, I had a really great dinner the other night at this restaurant, <laughs> blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. But it's like the impact of the past two years is not something we can also like, yes, maybe it's getting better, but that doesn't mean like we haven't had to experience what we've experienced, you know. So it's kind of interesting that it's like, well, that happened, but now we're fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think for most people that I've talked to, like on a much more personal level and also just like. I know like uh, a couple of friends that work in mental health, you know, it's like, no, no, this is serious. This is lasting. There are effects, you know, you know, so many people have died period, just even from that. So everyone around them, you know, it's like, yeah, there's a yeah. lot to, to take in. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I've been kind of like, I've been on vacation for a few months now. So uh, thankfully, like emotionally, I'm not too like, you know, lethargic, but yeah, kind of getting myself to like do simple tasks like emails is like trying. Um, but yeah, so yeah. let's start off kind of talking about your book. Um, you're releasing a book on onomatopoeia. I always can screw up their think, name, but yeah, it's like, I mean, yeah, onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia. That's, yeah, that's how I heard Frank, uh, the director, say it when I met him. So okay, so onomatopoeia. <laughs> Um, it's Something called like it's called I don't know if this title is confirmed or final but it's called design against design perspectives and projects on the ethics and aesthetics of graphic design um, so as we mentioned we were super excited to read it and it's kind of like a compilation of your writings um, which are like super thought-provoking and they're also super fun um, but one thread that I found was this like questioning of power in graphic design and whether persuasive power, whether it's the persuasive powers of Pantone or offering alternatives to the hierarchical studio, studio structure, um, just like where did all this interest come from, and like what is your relationship to power and, and design? You know, that's wow. a, a big question, but yeah, that's huge. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it's something that I find lacking in most 
design discourse, even and especially actually in like a lot of progressive design discourse, even, you mm -hmm. know, where there isn't an analysis of power. And so like I should say that, you know, like I have my graphic design practice, but I've also worked, you know, like informally um, as like a community organizer here in Montreal doing a lot of like activist work or community organizing work, you know, so which, you know, that and also having like worked in that space, but I mean, work is maybe not the right word, but being involved in that space, like, you know, and oftentimes you're in direct confrontation with power, you know, and be that at a protest, be that at a demonstration, or be that when you're trying to work on policy issues, you know, there's a conflictual relationship between, you know, what the quote unquote people or the community organization or the, the affinity group are working towards and, you're contesting that, you know, you're challenging either the government, you're challenging a private company. I remember during the 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 um, invasion of Afghanistan, there's like SNC-Lavalin, which makes like all the bullets, you know, in the world. And they're based here in Montreal. So like, you know, targeting direct companies and campaigns and things like that. So like that was the activist background of it, you know. And so there's always, a, you know, an analysis of power there. Whereas in design, I think, especially even design, quote unquote, for social good, a lot of that we see is like, okay, how can we solve these problems? You know, how can we do things better, which makes sense, but without kind of understanding that there's actually, you know, a conflictual relationship in society where there's people that have a lot of power and others that don't, you know, and that there's like totally ways where that's fought for you know and um mm. yeah so it's something that i find is like is really missing when we talk about design that can improve things because i do think like a lot of design will improve things and like we think of all these sort of like social design projects but if they don't accept that there's actually reasons why you know people are poor mm -hmm. um then, you know, we just like, it's kind of like a Band-Aid solution, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah, I think that's also interesting to hear because it sounds like it was both a, you know, concerted effort to fulfill a need, uh, you know, of because you see a lack of it, but also like a natural kind of union between the activities you're doing. I don't want to say outside I would say maybe like in union with your design practice. Um, so yeah, that that's really super helpful to understand your motivations. Um, the other thing I was curious about, um, I won't really dive into the essay contents itself because I think everyone should read it. Um, the essay you did on Pantone. Um, yeah. But what I was curious about was like you mentioned in like a footnote that it was the first piece that went viral. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was like just curious like how that experience was getting that kind of attention. Um, was it um, similar to getting doxxed, or was it like the opposite <laughs> of getting doxxed? Well, I've actually been doxxed too. So. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Um, and I can talk about that a little bit later. But that like, um, no, it was it was it was really flattering, you know, just to be honest, like, um, you know, here I, I was writing, you know, I was just writing this piece and I thought it was, I did think it was an important piece, you know? Um, and I just felt like I needed to, to, to write it. Um, and I don't know how it got, 
picked up necessarily, but it got kept picked up by a couple of places, uh, I guess more mainstream design places. Mm-hmm. I remember like, I think graphic wanted to do, I think I, I did push it too. Like once I had it written, I also shopped it around a little bit and I think uh, graphic picked it up and, you know, I'm friends with, um, well, I don't know if friends, but acquaintances with uh, Armin at the Under Consideration uh, brand new blog. Uh, I think that's where I saw it. Yeah, so he 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 threw a plug for me, which was nice. Um, but yeah, and then yeah, I just I, I I realized how much traffic we were getting on it, and saw that a lot of people were actually discussing it and making fun of it, which is great. It was fine. Um, yeah, and then I've had like a few people come back to me, just being like, "Wow, this piece is." you know, really changed my thinking and all this sort of stuff. Even, and it's not even really about Pantone when it comes down to it, you know, it's more the, the, the approach and the analysis that I think was important. Um, and so, yeah, I was really thrilled with that. And I think that actually encouraged me to, to, to eventually move towards, you know, writing this book because I was like, okay, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not a professional writer by any means. I'm not an academic necessarily, you know, I teach a bit, but it's not my, you know, main thing. Um, so yeah, it was really it was really great. I mean, it was it didn't you know it didn't make me no money, <laughs> but uh, I was really happy to see it circulate so much and 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 to get like affirmation that like the way that I'm approaching this thinking about design is is resonates with some people. You know, nice, nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, particularly, yeah. you mentioned a few uh, things about like co option and kind of designers relationships to subcultures and again i think everyone should go read it um let me get the proper title Um, that's uh it's the propaganda of pantone okay color and subcultural sublimation yes yes perfect um so i was just curious like what are your opinions on like the responsibility designers have because you know we're all in this position these positions where we like put together mood boards of like hip things that are coming out. Mm -hmm. We're constantly having to like trend forecasts and, you know, like it, it's kind of a tired story now, but I'm just, I just want to hear your opinion on like how to approach those with kind of respect, but also like celebrate it in a way and promote it because we are in positions of influence. Yeah. I mean, I don't think like, yeah, I've had someone else ask me this before, and it's like not a critique of appropriation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that in a in a broad sense, not like specific instances, but like of course we're always doing these, yeah, these mood boards, seeing things, picking up on things, etc. And a lot of the times we do probably, you know, unfortunately, especially the way that media, you know, the the way we work now, we lose track of those sources. You know, we don't know where where this thing originated. We just know hey, this is cool right now, you know? <laughs> um, so I think like, and, you know, in a lot of the pieces that I do, I'll definitely make references to to other moments, other cultures even, you know, um, in different ways. Um, but yeah, there is a certain responsibility to that in that like, who are you using this for, you know? And is there actually a match or are we just forcing that match, you know, because we can, because we want to make whatever X, Y, Z company or client look cool? Or is there actually a relationship between X, Y, Z company and and that aesthetic language, you know, um, and actually like put some value in that rather than just being like, this looks really cool and we just want to use it, you know? 
Um, so it's just about being more thoughtful, I think, really, you know, not about like, we can't touch things, you know, or we shouldn't just, we shouldn't be influenced by things because obviously we are, and that's the whole entire point, you know? Yeah, I love that answer. It's like so much more nuanced and it's kind of like, it's like a stewardship of what's appropriate. Um, it kind of leads me or leads Drew into someone who can be inappropriate. Um, yeah, Drew, <laughs> Drew, do you want to, do you want to? Is this, a, is this, you're talking about somebody whose yeah. name starts with a K? Oh, now it starts with a Y. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess this oh. is James trying to, t- I don't, I thought I I heard that at first as James telling everybody that I can be inappropriate. Oh which, no, totally. Yeah, yeah, I think I is, uh, <laughs> which I think is possibly true, but also yeah. not what he was intending to say, which yeah, is no, that no. Uh, Kanye West is uh, one of the topics that comes up in Loki's, well, I guess I'll refer to you as Kevin, but yeah, yeah. I don't know why I want to keep calling you Loki, but that's your dog's <laughs> name, which is that's on my your dog's lab, name, so. yeah. <laughs> so Kevin um, has a really cool essay that starts off talking about Kanye. And I had a lot, I mean, as a, you know, um, what's the word I want to use sort of at this point, begrudging, like I, I'm sort of sad for myself that I have to admit that I am a very big Kanye fan. And, and many people who know me uh, know this to be true. Um, and reading the, the essay was really interesting to me because I liked a, the way that you described runaway and particular, the part that is that you consider to be illegible as like one of the like most interesting three minutes in pop music history. Like (laughs) I believe that to be true too. And I don't think I've ever really heard anybody talk about that particular moment of the song because most people don't ever even mention that part which I actually think is, is interesting. And I, I was interested in what you were saying about how because you don't know what he's saying and there's this illegible aspect to that part of the song, it sort of creates more emotion than if he did know what he was saying. Yeah. yeah and then that yeah. leads you to talk about how, you know, much of his career is sort of doing the same thing where he's like making all these contradictions and doing things that don't fit together as a way of making himself sort of like illegible to create this sort of enigma like mystery um leading me to a question which is like how do you feel now that it's sort of gone on a little long even for our (laughs) takes like yeah i i can't really defend him anymore but i and i and i think that when you were saying you know he's done all these things that contradict each other and that sort of creates this interest and I'm just like wondering for me, like the free thought stuff and the, and like kind of hiding almost behind the words performance art. Like, how do you feel that like him kind of taking ownership of those ideas and like sort of making it, making himself like this beacon of like performance art and free mm-hmm. thought is like rubbing off on culture in mm-hmm. a, in a negative or positive way. Like, I, I'm curious, and A, like how you feel about putting an essay about somebody like that in a book that, that will like obviously kind of jump out amongst the others as a sort of like, you know, uh, what did I, how did I phrase this? Uh, basically a, a endorsement of him in a sense. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, yeah, this is a complex question because <laughs> there's a lot of complex. layers there. There's a lot of layers. Okay, first, before I jump into that, though, I just wanted to clarify because I always have to do this. And it's just important that I do have a dog named Loki who's sitting on my lap right now. But I have to clarify that I did not name the dog after my design studio because I think that would be like a Kanye thing to do. That would be like way too egotistical, you know? Um so yeah, the dog was already named Loki when 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 I got him, and it was a very happy coincidence. Um, but back to your and question, your name is friends, not Loki, and my name is not Loki. Um, my name is Kevin, and Loki is actually more than me as well. I should also, you know, really give props to uh, my designer Malinuel Ebel, who I work with, who has been like really holding the fort down during this pandemic time when I've been like a bit of an emotional mess, and she's just like pumping out the great work. So yeah, Loki yes. is also not just me, just to, just to clarify. Um, to come to Kanye, I don't know if it's like, I don't mean it to read as an endorsement of him, you know? Um, I don't know him, you know? I, I only can read him from, from, you know, from what I've experienced. And to be honest, even the last few years, like especially, I think I've mentioned it in the text, you know, like the sort of multiple Trump endorsements and that sort of stuff when, you know, that started becoming like, not to say the other stuff wasn't as serious, but that stuff started becoming like really serious. I just had to like kind of let go of it, you know, because I, I, I'm, you know, like, like you're saying, Drew, like I, I was, I'm a huge Kanye fan, you know, in terms of the, the music and think it's amazing. He is a brilliant, you know, producer and musician. Um, But that doesn't make him a fucking good person, you know? And so I don't think I was trying to endorse him again, sort of like the Pantone one. I was trying to use it as a way. It was a spark that like made me think about other things, you know, mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. kinds of questions about legibility and legibility and, and celebrity and other things, you know, um, that being said, I think, and, and like I said, I'm no expert and I haven't been following along, but I think like, you know, he's probably, he's probably a person that's dealing with some pretty serious mental health issues and doesn't have the, I don't know what it would be, you know, but is not surrounded by people that are able to like make him either. I mean, he realizes that, but I don't know if he's getting the help that maybe he needs, you know? So I don't want to like also like say, Oh, he's a, he's a evil person. I think he's just like a mad genius, you know, in some ways. And like, doing crazy shit um so i agree (laughs) i mean not more more to like the point that you're making in the essay which is about how like illegibility is a very good tool to use in a political way yeah Um, like at what level of platform are you kind of responsible for being a bit more legible? I guess legible, is, yeah, is the exactly. way is the way that I'm thinking about it. Cause it's like, you know, if he were just like some punk, like living in like, you know, some small city and wasn't like one of the most famous people in the world, he wouldn't be, it, it would, no one would really care. Be that a, much. Yeah. It wouldn't be a problem, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I'm curious about that. Cause like legibility. And I think that's what happened with like, you reference cult of the ugly in the essay and things like that. Like, people were pissed off because it was getting in the way of legibility and illegibility were getting kind of mixed together and, and messing with credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so like and at what scale is legibility like almost a requirement even though illegibility is almost more interesting and more nuanced like i'm yeah. I'm, I'm interested in what you think about that not that yeah, you have I mean, all the answers or sure no, i definitely have no answer i definitely don't have the answers to that and i think you know it's specifically relevant to these times we're talking about like like you're saying credibility but also like what the fuck is the truth you know with all the propaganda flying around you know we're talking about this war right now but also covid and all the skeptics so it's like i don't know if that's necessarily the same thing as like the illegibility legibility divide you know but it's like where does our you know where has not that i think we should all have faith in our institutions a lot of the times i'm i'm the one challenge I'm, you know with the people that are challenging that but like where we're kind of don't have a common baseline of understanding you know i think that's that's where we're getting like a lot of problems are happening you know um and that does relate a bit to that piece you know where this mm -hmm. idea of like how do we you know how do we actually find ways to speak among ourselves where we can like you know relate to each other and 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 like find strength in each other not necessarily even in huge groups you know but even in smaller groups you know and mm -hmm. yeah it goes a bit away from Kanye, but I do think like similarly, like, you know, I, I, I wish, I don't know, like, I wish I had better friends, I guess, you know, to, like rein them in and like, be like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, there's this weird thing with him that I think also kind of relates to what we're talking about here, which is like, there's this odd transparency to it, which is like, he's, you know, in that song in particular is a great example where it's like, He's never shied away from admitting that he is deeply flawed. That's always mm -hmm. part of the art. And then you're talking about like someone like Trump, who would not admit that, <laughs> but he but is very much illegible <laughs> in a certain sense. But yeah, I, I think the, the the question of like transparency and legibility and illegibility and how it relates to design is and politics is is just an interesting place to to start talking about and i think the fact that you got there from kanye was very interesting to me <laughs> um i am curious you know with the transparency and illegibility thing like you know yeah it's it's a, it's, it's almost like a like a balancing act that's impossible to actually do. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know uh, what the yeah. question really is. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, like, you know, it works. I mean, like, even if I'm thinking about the kind of, like, aesthetics that I think, I mean, I'm assuming that you, you guys are pretty interested in just based on the guests that you've had. And, and you know, obviously, they're, it's really broad, you know, but... Um, some of the things are maybe a bit more experimental or whatnot, you know, like, I think we are like, I think these questions are really interesting to be like, why, I mean, this is fundamentally what's happening in a lot of the book, you know, it's like, why are, without having an answer, but like, why are these aesthetics happening? You know, um, mm -hmm. why do they happen in certain moments? Um, and that can be from, from either like a really super like neutral corporate design, you know, to, um, like your, your GSG logo, you know? Um, so like, like thinking on a, on a broader level about these kind of aesthetic tropes and tendencies and why certain typefaces are like really, really popular. And like, what are these trend cycles? Why are these trend cycles happening? You know, I think it relates a lot to 
things that are going on in like in 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 culture and in politics you know Mm -hmm. um even if we're not like directly aware of it there's something some threads that are interesting to follow you know and so that's i think like at least in my mind the kind of thread that runs through my practice and also my thinking around it you know It's magic, in a sense. Any blank canvas forming into an idea is a true inexplicable gift from yourself to yourself and to whomever else may engage with it. Whether you acknowledge it or not, your process, however messy, chaotic, disciplined, stressful, loose, frenzied, is a source of magic and a glimmer of hope to cling to. Embrace your magic and find peace in its frequency. Slow down and watch the magic happen before your eyes. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was a big topic actually when we had Metahaven come to RISD when James and I were there. And one of the questions that, I don't remember if somebody asked them this or if James remembered somebody asking them this at a different time, but and what told me about it, but they were like basically saying, you know, your work is extremely off-putting and visually like alienating. Like, why would you make work that does that if you're trying to convince people about political ideas that are positive? Like, wouldn't you want to attract people towards these ideas? And I found that to be really interesting because I do believe that what they're doing is incredibly political visually, but it's actually obviously alienating to most people and i think a lot of political work can be that your work is very much not that your work is very pleasing to look at it has its own sort of style and and so i'm curious where you think people who are trying to convince or create positive change politically like where on the spectrum should they kind of uh, occupy because it's it's basically like if you're too corporate then people are going to say that it looks cheesy or you know something or other and then if it's too kind of extreme and ugly and weird which is probably the inclination for a lot of political people then it's going <laughs> to push people away like where what are your thoughts on that I guess based on some of these like illegibility questions how, how did how did uh, how did the answer I think this is maybe a combination of experiences. Like I saw Daniel Vandervelden speak in uh, the Netherlands once. And this one guy, he was like literally in a suit. He is like a corporate design guy. He's like, I've been working in the industry for 20 years. And like, I've never, you know, I've always pleased the client. And like, he's like, this is not design. Um, and, and I think, I think someone at RISD also uh, kind of like a, ask this question of like why do you make things so confrontational when you're trying to persuade someone um how they like during yeah i don't remember the clear answer but i do remember daniel vandervelden kind of in the netherlands being like 
I'm not going to answer this question. Like, it's not for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's clearly like, not for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're not the intended audience, so stop caring. <laughs> but that's the real question, right? It's like, yeah. if you're only making this work for people who are, like, incredibly visually literate and understand, like, a vast history of visual culture that goes beyond, like, what you can see in like your everyday life then what's the point really to a certain extent aside yeah. from pushing the conversation in the same way that like experimental music pushes the conversation or like yeah but anything I, I, experimental. Yeah, I, I do think that's kind of the point you know like if 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 i'm and i mean again i don't want to definitely don't want to shit on them at all and i definitely don't you know know well enough or done enough research to be able to be like okay like i really know what what's going on here but like in my mind at least more recently you know they're operating in the art world you know, this is where, where are we, you know, we're seeing their work in exhibitions. We're seeing their work. It's not, you know, it's not on, not to say that like stuff we do is on consumer project, like products, but it's not like, it's not even a poster in the street, you know, it's in, it's in at the ICA in London or whatnot, you know? So at the same time, I think if we look at the aesthetics that they kind of quote unquote established in some ways, and where there are probably a lot of like very complex ideas behind and like the kind of late, like everything that was sort of going on there. And we can sort of trace that trickle down, I think, into, you know, some of the stuff that maybe we're seeing some kid making on Instagram about like, you know, um, self-care, you know, like there is an aesthetic lineage or an aesthetic link, I think, you know, so it mm -hmm. is kind of this like experimental music, which then moves, quote unquote, the rest of music forward in a way. Right, but that's, right. I'm only thinking about that right now. It's not something I thought about before. Yeah. Um, and I'd also say that I think like confrontation is good, you know, <laughs> like I think like <laughs> power, like it depends what you're, what you mean by confrontation, you know, but I think like when we do a lot of our work, it's not necessarily about like persuading people, you know, it's more about like representing certain people and their values you know so like mm -hmm. I, I always use this example like it's a very simple example and it's very like maybe a little too like literal but i always say okay especially now we can see that you know like how many like what no war like if you if you make a poster for no war in ukraine or elsewhere over the course of all the wars that have happened and we see a lot of the designers making like anti-war posters that say that just say no war you know that's not gonna convince Putin to 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 stop invading, you know, that's not going to convince um, any dialogue to happen between those nations, you know. Um, so what is its role then? You know, is it just so that we as designers feel better about ourselves or expressing that? But it's like, to me, these are acts of solidarity, you know, and these are acts so that people that are, let's say, and again, I'm using the specific context right now, but I think you could say about all sorts of different things, you know, like, you know, people of Ukrainian descent here in Canada that see that poster up there, they're not going to feel as alone. You know, they're going to feel that, okay, there are people behind me. So a lot of the times, like when we think of like a political poster as like, or design in general is meant, it's meant to persuade someone. A lot of the time, I think it's actually like meant so that people and like, especially with the work that we do, like generally marginalized identities, be it by race, gender, class, whatever, you know, feel less alone and alienated by like what's in the mainstream media for example mm -hmm. yeah so, that's a really good good point yeah and i think yeah, yeah. yeah like this like, idea of like the designer persuading is like not yeah exactly it's not, it's not the same as advertising right i'm not trying to get yeah, you to yeah. like buy a product although they use this approach too you know but like i want to 
yeah, feel like that my my views are represented. Right. But yeah. I love that. I love that answer, too, because I think oftentimes political design work is misconceived as persuasion and propaganda, mm-hmm. which it is, too. Right. Yeah, as but, well. yeah. but, you know, this idea of the active part of political design being representation and being the loudspeaker for whoever is whoever's cause you're trying to amplify. Um, mm-hmm. um I don't know how to prepare for this, but I guess I'll jump in. Um, another big part of your book is actually in the the front part of your book after the in, part of like an introduction. Um, but, but, you know, your book starts with this beautifully written, but also really disturbing description of abuse that you suffered for many years. And I'll preface this by thanking you for sharing your experience with such poetry and courage. Um, and admittedly, I and and probably Drew don't have many tools to sp- speak about these abusive experiences. But maybe just if we could start off with you, if you feel comfortable briefly describing what happened. Sure. So, I mean, I think I'll start up by like just explaining why it's in the book, mm-hmm. you know, in the first place. Um, and... Actually, no, I'll, I'll explain what it is, and then maybe we can talk a bit more about why and, like, how I okay. conflicted in design. So, yeah, just, yeah, being perfectly frank, and hopefully we can throw some trigger warnings in this, but mm-hmm. um, the front matter of the book describes, not in detail, but sort of flashbacks um, to the past and to the present at the time that it was written of uh, childhood sexual abuse that I suffered for the span of about five years between the ages of like nine and 14 or so, or 10 and 15. I can't remember exactly. Um, and it was at an alternative school and summer camp that um, I had gone to uh, in kind of the East coast in the woods in Nova Scotia here in Canada and at the hands of the, uh, the, the counselor there. And it was like kind of like a hippie alternative nature camp slash alternative school. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, the, the hard facts of the matter are, even though my memory is really blurry about it, is that I was sexually abused. Um, you know, I still have a hard time, let's say using the word rape, but, Mm -hmm. uh, that's what other people will say, you know, um, for, for five years by, by an older man who had all the power and all the, everything in that world of that camp. And, you know, I think that, which is the case for, for a lot of childhood sexual abuse victims, either through fa- by family or whatnot, I saw this person as a father figure, you know, um, for those years and actually really loved him in many ways, you know, so there's that too. And I think obviously this had a lot of impact on my life, on my life as a teenager and young adult, et cetera, but I don't think I really started interrogating it until like much later in life and it was interesting because i'm not going to obviously name them but other people that had gone through that um with me also i realized started uh doing that you know um much later in life you know so we're talking about 20 almost yeah 20 20 25 years removed you know um and i realized that i you know i deal with symptoms of like uh, CPTSD, even though, I mean, I don't know if I'm officially diagnosed that way, but like of complex post-traumatic, um, syndrome. 
and yeah so i mean that's that's what that's kind of the story and i would and mm-hmm. the reason the way that it's written just to 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 preface it, um, it was actually written for uh, another book that my dear friend uh, Cindy Milstein put together, an anthology called Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief. Um, and she was looking at the way that like, the role of grief and mourning play within different activist contexts and activist cultures throughout the world um, and had asked her friends for, for different essays. And so me, I was kind of relating to this trauma that I suffered as a kid and trying to see how that related to like maybe why I decided to do the type of activism that I did do, um, how I reacted in certain situations during certain protests and certain social movements, et cetera, um, the kind of anger and, you know, at the same time, anger and desire that comes in that those spaces as well, you know, and that's that like a lot of people that I think are doing this kind of work are damaged people in some ways. I don't use, I'm not using that term in the kind of like, oh, they're damaged people going out, you know, by any means, but like have had rough shit happen to them, you know? So, so yeah, I was trying to like basically for me a way to kind of like look back at that and start interrogating it a little bit more, um, you know, and, and see how it connected to my life in the present. Mm-hmm. Um, and in rewrite and sort of reworking it for, for this collection from what it was before, I've started to see a link to, in terms of like beyond my, like beyond how it drove, drove my activism it also just drove my design practice or mm-hmm. and my desires and design in order to like communicate and create connection, ex- ex- you know, express yourself, et cetera. Um, express the inexpressible in some ways, you know? Um, So I wanted that thread to be there because I do think, and I guess you guys do as well, because that's why this podcast exists. Like there is a strong link between the type of work we do as communicators and, you know, I think psychology and mental health and, and, you know, and hopefully, you know, moving towards something that is like more carrier oriented. So like, I think that thread does also run through the book, you know? Um, I think design is really like an incredibly relational profession in many ways, you know, um, relationships with your clients, relationships with the people that you're, you're attempting to reach and speak to, um, relationships with your coworker, you know, I mean, obviously every, every, every type of job is relational, but I think there's something specific when you are working in the realm of communication, you know? So I think that's a really interesting thread to follow, you know, if like design, Mm -hmm practice is all about relationships and like how do we build these better relationships you know mm-hmm. by, by looking at ourselves a little bit more deeply mm-hmm. yeah thank you i mean for thank you for sharing yeah. yeah thank you for sharing <laughs> You're yeah. Welcome. yeah. Um, and it is interesting too when you didn't use this word but the word that comes to mind for me which i throw around a lot on this podcast and in just talking about design and client relationships and all sorts of relationships in design is trust and obviously, yes. an abusive situation is something that would really diminish your ability to trust other people. Yes. But then yes. But maybe you're creating sort of uh, these relation- new relationships where you can really build trust with people. And I think uh, trust is a really important thing in design that I feel like gets misconstrued a lot. Um, and so maybe that's part of why you also wanted to like include it in the beginning. Or um, Yeah. 
actually it's really funny i don't because i haven't actually like the text that i'm working on right there's a few, like the book is is like i would say 80 percent written but there's a few more essays that i really wanted to to tackle and like one of them that i'm working on right now is and i won't give everything away but is on like design and anxiety so um mm. which you guys have talked about a lot on the show you know um neither of us and, have that no, yeah. really. <laughs> <laughs> no not at all not at all <laughs> um and the the thread I try to I, I kind of get to is actually yeah looking at the opposite of anxiety not necessarily being like calm that's what we might assume you know if you're anxious you're like feeling frenetic or not so the opposite of that is calm but like the opposite that I send it as is like is trust right and then you can start breaking it down and especially in relationship to design you know like how you know what are the what are the requirements for trust you know um, and. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking through that exactly, like probably for those reasons of where like I I, I have had that, I, like it's kind of funny because I think I'm still a generally trusting person, but I definitely have a hard time like with, let's say intimate, like like to certain levels of intimacy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't just mean that like sexually or, or relationships or like, or like romantic relationships, but just in general, you know, um, and have like dissociative tendencies and things like that, that I've Mm -hmm. now identified as I've gotten older, you know? So there's like an active attempt, even if it's like from a really might seem a completely different angle, you know, but like, okay, how does, how does trust work, you know? And how can I figure that out through the design that I do, you know, even if that's, totally not related let's say to you know the, the the sexual abuse that i suffered but like i think it is a way of working through it you know right. yeah and it's like literally i could be like okay well if i use this typeface you know <laughs> like in this context with this client like there's going to be some sort of like trust that's happening you know and it's like so it's like breaking it down into ways that i have control over you know and it's like, yeah i mean i think like for me at least and, and i think maybe you can relate to this. It sounds like you can, but like the feeling that comes from having a real, like what feels like an authentic relationship with somebody where you're really aligning on what both of you as the designer and as the client are interested in is really like almost euphoric when it's done in a way that doesn't feel like, Oh, I just like, I happen to get away with like, people always say like, Oh, I I can't believe I got away with this, you know, like with the client or whatever, but it's like that (laughs) framing is like, so fraught because it's like, well, the client should want to get away with it with you, you know, or whatever. And I think like, you know, as somebody, obviously I don't, I cannot relate to your experience specifically, but you know, suffering in terms of like, you know, some familial stress and like kind of chaotic, like, family life and bullying and things like that like I do feel like that disassociative quality is sort of the default for a long time when I was growing up was just like sort of like well you're never gonna connect with anybody on a deep level so you just sort of like pretend until magically like like you're winning the lottery or something the person on the other end's like yeah okay (laughs) like but developing that ability to really like connect and develop trust with people at different scales even if it's just a a professional relationship or even if it's you know with you it's it's more sensitive because a lot of the stuff is activist oriented Mm -hmm. or or for politically engaged clients but i think that that is something that's really important that uh i want people to talk about in this industry specifically is like it can be a collaboration that's built on trust 
and disassociating and like trying to kind of like what is it called like uh like power through the conversation just to get to the end is like kind of a bad uh precedent i think to set now i know that's being a little bit idealistic but no i i for me like it's kind of mind-blowing that you've connected anxiety and trust um especially like on a personal level like so much of my anxiety comes from doubt and then being able to find that moment where I trust myself to really do yeah. this work and even just like life things like trust myself to control my diet or trust myself to, you know, be steady in this moment. Um, but also this, I mean, it's so funny, Drew, to, to you, how you mentioned like things between clients being a collaboration and having a genuine relationship. Like so often, like we we've had guests on this in this show who have like, kind of i wouldn't say flippant but like they present it, it comes off like this magic happened we like the clients trust us and and maybe like that isn't supposed to be so strange it has maybe it isn't even supposed to be a victory it should be it could be the default you know like there should be a relationship built on trust and like collaboration and i think that you know by connecting it to anxiety and you know, I'm going to add this maybe level of doubt. I think that kind of um, humanizes the relationship in a way that, that, you know, seems much more natural and not less, less like this magic moment where we found the right client, and we built the right relationship. Um, so it kind of like, maybe we can move the conversation towards new normals um, and less combative mm -hmm. strategies. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm lucky given given the type of space that I work in, you know. Um, I have worked, you know, like I, I worked in agency context too, like in a you know prior life basically spent about 10 years working in, in more advertising and interactive design agencies and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, I could go on a long rant about that, but I don't think it's, it's on the point. Um, but having being able to like, build our studio the way that we want to. And, and in most cases, you know, working with people that we want to, um, it's not like it's, it's strategic in some ways, but it's also like you're saying, it's just kind of like normal, you know? And I think given, especially the context of the last few years, like, like, like we were talking about at the very beginning of the, of the interview, um, it's, like, I think this kind of like transparency and just being like, yo, this is where we're at right now, you know? And I've like surprisingly, not surprisingly, but like found that people are really understanding, you know? So like, I've, I've definitely, like I said, not been working as much or as quickly as I normally would. And, you know, when I explain that to people that are working with and my clients, they understand, you know? And it's just like, okay. So, mm -hmm. and I think that's, you know, that, that builds trust because I'm like, okay, I can be open with them about like, more than just why I chose this typeface, <laughs> for example, right? It's like, <laughs> like my life is kind of fucked right now and I need a bit more time, but we're going to get through this together, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I think like trust is a huge thing in design that I'm like really interested in exploring further in that essay because it's also talking about like, yes, trust with the clients, but it's also about like, when I think about it, you know, it's also the job of building trust between quote unquote a brand and and its consumer or like, you know, uh, an author and their reader, you know, if you're doing a book or whatnot. So like we operate in that realm of like building trust, you know, so we should yeah. be better at it or more, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, similarly, I feel like I feel like this idea. I wasn't thinking about this either in this in terms of this, but like when I was talking earlier about like these corporate designs versus like a more kind of anarchist design ideology, you know, everybody has different litmuses for trust. Like the average consumer might trust something that looks really corporate and not something that looks. Whereas someone like you or James or I like might only want to look at a book cover that looks like completely illegible or like something that like (laughs) we can't comprehend because that means it's like really creative and weird and bold and interesting. So I don't know that that's also kind of a just yeah. You gotta, I mean, that's why you gotta know. You know, we've got to know who we're talking to, right? So Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna kind of go out on the limb a little bit here. because in our previous conversation in preparation for this, we were talking about your work on activism. And I know there's not like a direct one-to-one to your abuse, but I'm going to make an assumption that like maybe some of that, what I mean, like the question is like, was there a motivation to get involved in certain groups that kind of maybe became like an active form of healing? Um, and like, I guess the larger question there is, again, like how to make how design can be more active. How how can like those posters that we post on Instagram Instagram be more? So that's like the second part of the question towards your activism. But I think I kind of want to start where where you made that jump from going from agency life into moving um, into a more you know social change space Uh and, you know, how those motivations shifted. Hmm. I mean, I have to say that, like, I, you know, the, when I was working in agencies, I was still doing like personal and political work on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more just a practical thing in terms of like, you know, it took me a long time to build out, get past that doubt, you know, and build up that confidence to be able to be like, okay, I can actually like start my own studio doing this type of work and like. Mm-hmm still make a, a living, you know? So I I think like I was always interested in the political aspects of design since like probably my undergrad, you know, like maybe the end of my undergrad. Um, and that was around 2000, which is, you know, a long time ago now. Um, I'm older than I look. <laughs> and uh, um. Huh. I'm trying to like draw the threads that you're drawing, James, because I yeah. think they are interesting. Yeah, I think you know, as a teenager, um, I felt pretty shitty, but I think a lot of teenagers feel pretty shitty. <laughs> you know, it's like rough being a teenager, but I think I felt particularly shitty, obviously due to the abuse. Though I don't think I was at all like even processing that connection in my head. You know. Um, That being said, like coming out of that kind of like angry, upset, depressed teenager mode and then like into university and like learning about design and having some fun with it, but still feeling pretty shitty. I think it was like through like some comm studies courses that I took, which started like pointing me towards like, quote unquote, the like this really simplistic language, but like the evils of advertising, you know? and like how advertising impacts our culture and i'm like it started make it started give me like giving me somewhere to point why i was feeling shitty because maybe i didn't want to point it at 
the abuse that I suffered. So I'm like, you know what? Actually, you know, I hate capitalism. I don't hate myself. And, <laughs> and I mean, I know that sounds like really naive, but like the more and more that I dug into it, the more and more that made sense and still does to me in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think like I was always doing this kind of work through design. I was always like using design in ways, you know, like I, I, like I made stuff for like Adbusters magazines and shit like that, you know, and did like culture jamming stuff back in the day and like a lot of internet activism type stuff, but it was never like a professional design practice until we really started the studio. Um, and I don't know if I've sort of lost the thread a little bit, but I think like really the, fu the funny thing is just like concretely the switch happened um, after I like stopped working at the sort of corporate job that I was doing and was still freelancing for like agencies and stuff like that. So still doing like corporate work, but just as a freelancer. And then there was a huge um, student strike here in Montreal um, on fight, like fighting against uh, tuition hikes, which became like a pretty broad based movement here in Quebec, but also like really influenced a lot of stuff. I think even in the States, like I know that they, the, um, I don't know which school it was, but Anyways, there's like mobilization around uh, debt strikes in the states that happened too that were influenced, right. I think, at first by what was going on in Montreal. So this is in, in 2012. And like I was working as a part-time faculty member at the school and doing like freelance work on the side. But like as the strike grew and as I got more involved, like and it lasted like eight months. So basically I just ended up like was in the streets every night or was like organizing or like putting on events or like creating like media stuff or whatnot and really threw myself into the movement. And like, after that moment, like I was like, I was broke because <laughs> I like burned through my savings. And I didn't work for like a year, you know, it was just like <laughs> protesting for a year. Um, and sorry, this is yeah going on a bit long, but, uh, and, and, and uh, so, yeah, I, I basically was like broke. I was like, what the fuck? I took one more corporate job at like a high end fashion company uh, learned a lot about fashion, which is great. And then like, after I left that, I was like, you know what, I just can't go back to that world. Like I have to figure out some way to do this myself. So, um, and that, so that was just like throwing me into the fire of starting the studio. So like, that's a really practical thing. It was just like, I didn't, I always wanted to do that, but I don't think I ever had the like real confidence to do that until I right. just, I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't go back to like advertising world anymore. Right. Right. That's interesting. Cool to also hear because it's like a combination of enlightening moments in your in your education and something an interest that you've had throughout. But then also there was a kind of singular moment where it's like, okay, I gotta turn off the lights for this like corporate stuff and you know turn on the lights of my own <laughs> in my own studio. Um, but I think Drew also had a question, like in terms of capitalism and and money, um, just like yeah, like yeah. I mean, I was I was really interested in how like your a lot of your writing discusses like how there's a responsibility of design to exist within the capitalist framework to a limit. Like there's I forget where you said this, but like you have a friend who basically was just like capitalism sucks, but like just make as make enough money as you can to like do okay for have the life you want and then like stop there kind of thing um do you feel like there is enough work to be done both for yourself and like just like 
if every designer in the world basically was like, screw capitalism, I'm just going to do <laughs> work for people who want to make good things for the world and help activists. Like, I mean, this is a, that's an exaggeration, but like, is there enough of this work to sustain a lifestyle that you're comfortable with? Like, uh, generally. And then like, if, if there wasn't only that type of work, like, would there be enough and who, yeah, I think like just the, the practicality of that is, is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Cause I'm sure yeah. if, if most designers with like good moral values had it their way, they would not be working for like these massive corporations. So I'm just curious what you think about it. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think the easy answer to that is actually like within the current structures of our like quote unquote, I hate this word, but developed world, you know, like, no, there probably isn't, you know, because there, there isn't money in these spaces. And that's a decision that, you know, we have made, or I mean, I don't know if we've made it, but like, that's, that's a decision that's like, or that's, that's because of the way that capitalism is, is structured currently, you know, um, that being said, I think like, you know, you all, I, this is funny. Cause like, I actually did a bit of a master's degree in the Netherlands. Um, I didn't complete my master's there, but I did do it there. And like what really drove me there was because I realized like how much at the time, at least, and I think it still is, you know, like design is, is seen as a part of cultural production, you know, and is funded in, in, in such a way, you know, I always go back to the, the, the debate between like Wim Kraul and, 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 uh, Jan. <laughs> Jan Van, yeah and Jan Van Torn that like was actually in the newspapers you know like <laughs> like that wouldn't happen there so like anyway so this is a bit this is sort of like a bit diverging but like it like the way our societies are structured value different things you know um and so currently and I was having this discussion with another friend in in Berlin who does similar work to us is like yeah if all the designers that are coming up now all the young students that do want to be doing this good work where are they going to get the jobs because they're going to either take them from you, you know, <laughs> or take them from me in its, in its sense, you know, um, that doesn't mean the needs not there, but definitely like the economics of it don't make sense, mm -hmm. you know, but I do think that there's an expanding role of design, you know, in many ways as well, beyond, let's say, say like corporate branding or like, you know, pure graphic graphic design. And there's a lot of needs coming from a lot of organizations that are not necessarily like, like how much do these companies role does, do these companies play within our economy? I mean, it's huge, you know, but there's also work in nonprofits. There's also work in like different grassroots community organizations and all these places need communications people, you know? So it's about like kind of flipping the script, I think in terms of like what we think is a designer's job, right? A designer's job is to make mm -hmm. a logo for a fancy company or to do like a really cool ass, like art catalog or a record cover, you know? But what about the like, you know, a little community center down the street? Like, could that not have some brilliant design somehow, you know? Um, and why not, you know, or that political organization. And so the work, like, like that's what surprised me. I mean, I'm not to say that we're like, we're definitely not raking it in, but we are surviving, you know? Um, and, and our stuff is like probably on a smaller scale because we like to keep things small scale, you know, but I know there are a lot of design studios doing what we might say, like good nonprofit work, you know? And, uh, so I don't think that there's, 
I think like, yeah, on that practical level of the, of the economics of it, like not everyone can do this and like, you know, that's okay. But at the same time, I think it's also about like, how do we value different things in our society and how can we shift that as well? You know, to have some agency in that as designers, but also as like individuals, right? Yeah. We place value on these things and that because we place value on it, then they can pay designers, you know? And I've seen that myself in terms of just certain organizations getting more funding or getting less funding, you know, and and like seeing how that shifts over the years, you know? Mm -hmm. It almost, I was thinking like, I mean, this is a, a interesting parallel, but like how there are public defenders, like it, it almost, yeah. I wonder if there could be like a public design fund, you know, like where it's like, if you're an organization that needs design, but you can't afford to have design, yeah, there's yeah, like yeah, this yeah. person who's hired by the government to do design. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know how successful that would be. But, uh... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's funny because I've, I've, I mean, in some ways I've thought also of like incorporating our studio as like a nonprofit, you know, where I still get paid, but it's like, we're not really making any profit anyways. So like in terms of like banking cash, you know, like that's not happening. So there are like also like different like work models that I think are interesting. Like, I mean, I, I like the, it's funny because like the public defender, you know, kind of thing, right. It's like, when you think of like, who wants to be a big hotshot lawyer, they're not thinking of being a public defender, you know, but Hey, right. those public defenders are doing, doing good work for, you know, exactly. Um, and yeah, that's sort of like the role I see. I mean, we probably definitely charge a shit ton less than any of those agencies, you know, so people can access our work, you know, we're trying to find that balance where we can still make a living, but like, it's not a huge burden on organizations we're working with. Mm-hmm. I'm also, maybe this is a misconception that I have, but I'm also curious about like the get, a, to get a little bit more behind the motivations to do this kind of work of social change and also the activism work so i think i have a misconception where it's like maybe coming i mean probably definitely coming from a, a, a point of dissatisfaction but i think i tend to equate it a little bit too much to this, a, a, a feeling of angst um mm. but I'm, I'm curious maybe also like just describing like how your motivations have evolved in the emotional spectrum of of the work as you've become more involved in community organizing and well worked with people who have these, you know, deep convictions or, I mean, not to say that like a community can uh, organizing com- conviction is more, more or less true than like a, you know, a shoe company, like, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to kind of say that like nonprofits are more passionate because they're, mm-hmm you know, not getting the financial rewards, but I think that's a little unfair too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm curious how your, your motivations have evolved as it's matured from that yeah. emotional spectrum. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think, cause I do think originally it really did come from this kind of like depressed angsty place of like mm-hmm. the world is really fucking like, I feel unhappy in the world and then like i was saying as i got older like oh there's this thing called capitalism that makes us do all these things (laughs) and like that's why i'm unhappy (laughs) and kind of like targeting that and critiquing that and like using design to critique that and like get out my angst and my anger you know Mm -hmm. um in a like as poetic a way as possible, you know, <laughs> like, like some sort of, you know, like, like the emo, emo uh, 
goth band version design version of the emo goth band you know um that's sort of what i was doing for a while um but i think as i've gotten more involved and this really like again comes back to the relational context you know of meeting people actually doing you know organizing work on 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 specific causes or specific campaigns like and that's the thing i was never because of that like angst i don't think i was ever like oh i care a lot about the environment you know or i care a lot about animal rights or i care a lot about um you know uh specifically migrant justice like i care about all these things i care about fucking oppression in in general you know because of that angst but seeing people working in, in in different ways like it i think as a good designer should i think in some ways like it, it took me a little bit more outside of it in that sense i don't know if this makes sense right but like to actually then understand those contexts a lot better you know and like what it meant to do communications for that um and how to work with people in community and to like not be at the center with my like angsty shit you know mm. Mm -hmm. um and to learn you know and learn about these struggles and like how do they actually impact people and how do they impact me and then like so in a sense it's like actually i've become more professional in and i don't again i use that word with like quotation marks you know but like i think yeah it's like i'm 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 much more knowledgeable about the struggles themselves but also like in terms of I'd, i'd like to think like how to how to communicate them, you know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like you've gone from being like somebody who wants to make sort of a statement with your design to somebody who is like a conduit for other people's uh, yeah, a little and, like, uh, needs. A little bit, but I still feel like, I, um, well, I think this is why it's a, like, you know, in that description, in the description of our studio, I put like graphic design, cultural production, and social change. It's like these three kind of things. And sometimes people ask me, or at least I think they ask me, or maybe I just ask myself, like, why did I put graphic design in there? Because it's obvious I'm a design studio, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and one part of it is like, and this is why I'm like happy to participate in this podcast and stuff like that too, is like, I actually really care about graphic design as mm-hmm. a discipline, as a practice. And so it's also actually a focus of our work. And if I'm making any sort of statement, it's to maybe it's it's towards people in graphic design, hmm. you know, but I'm not trying to make that statement to, you know, well, maybe to a certain extent, like, okay, your graphics could be better, <laughs> you know, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, I think like what I've realized as I've gotten more like experience in the, in, in, in the work that I do, I'm like, okay, well, I believe in design as a medium. I believe in design as a discipline. And like, actually that's where, where I want to make that, that statement. That's why I'm writing this book. That's why I'm doing like the more experimental Mm -hmm. works, maybe that like will hopefully participate in some sort of like design discourse, you know? So yeah, yeah. yeah, I like, I I think it's like, I still feel real, have a lot of agency in in the, the work I do for, for our clients and our collaborators and our partners, you know, but like my desire to, to speak to audience is like really, also geared towards designers you know themselves because mm-hmm. i want to i mean it's a discipline more. it's interesting forward. to say that too because like hearing you talk about it in that way and in this context i often am like kind of thinking about this podcast and thinking about like myself as a designer and like james and i talk about this too like it is like 
often easy for designers to just be like, it's just design. Like we, like we take this way too seriously. Like why? Like, <laughs> it's so dumb, but, but actually like, to be fair, like it is a really powerful thing and it is a really important thing. That is an art that is difficult to master that requires like a level of understanding about like the world and how visual culture works and what it means, et cetera. And like, the only reason really why it's been degraded is because a lot of people aren't very good at it. Uh, <laughs> not, not in the sense that, you know, uh, like judge, not in a judgmental way, but it's like, if you degrade something to the point where it's like, Oh yeah, everybody thinks that, that it's something that is just easy to do, then yeah, every, it's going to, you're going to think it's stupid, but it's not really that easy to do. I think one of the reasons why this podcast exists is because graphic design as a medium is sort of self-loathing and, and sort of <laughs> full of people who have like this weird relationship with their own self-esteem. And I think a lot of it comes from these issues. And, th and that's not to say that like, yeah, I agree. Like the democratization of anything is like amazing and everybody should have access to tools and people should be able to make things. But yeah, I think it's just an interesting question of like, what is like, what is the value of, of a graphic designer anymore? Mm -hmm. uh, and like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just something to think about. And, and it's something to, to think about in terms of how can we as a industry, like promote positivity about like what we do has value, not in the sense of like, oh, we're better than anybody else, but like what we do is, is, is not negligible. I mean, it certainly yeah, could yeah, be, yeah. but like, it doesn't have to be being thoughtful about anything is, is, is a worthwhile endeavor, I guess. support now we love hearing from the design community call us at 202-507-9158 please share your story with us after the tone we'll do our best to respond on our podcast please leave a name or alias design role and location thank you for your call thing we like to do in the podcast in, in summary is come up with a mantra um, mm -hmm. i love that idea of anxiety and trust but i don't know if this is the right interpretation to say trust your anxieties or anxiety mm -hmm. can lead to trust mm -hmm. or overcome your anxieties with trust i don't know i, I might not, not be interpreting the right way but i mean one thing one thing that i was gonna say about the whole trust conversation was that 
a lot of the issues with ang- or a lot of anxiety comes from not trusting yourself, which then it prevents you from trusting anything and then trusting the process. So I don't know if that's helpful at all in, in terms of, you know, like when you grew up in a situation or had a trauma in your past where you sort of almost like have that kind of like I was sort of, uh, you know, part of the reason why I was bullied or whatever, like I should have been more blank or whatever. Like you don't trust yourself to get yourself out of like shitty situations, basically. I like that. I mean, I like trust. I just don't know. um, Anxiety, trust. Yeah. Maybe we could just go with trust. But that could be the name of the episode. Yeah. But the because uh... oh, I think I there's know. also like what you're saying is like there's the like just to not that this needs to go in but just like thinking about I don't know if necessarily like there's there, there is like trust in yourself you know which doesn't necessarily lead to trust in others you know like I think they're actually separate things you can trust other people without trusting yourself and you can trust yourself without like trusting mm-hmm. others you know and then there's also like trust in the context or in the environment, which is like safety, you know? So it's not so much about trust, just trusting yourself. I think it's like also needing to like figure out how to trust other people and also like building environments that are like safe so that they can trust to be, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah, I think for me, it's like once I can trust myself, then I can trust that I can trust myself that I will develop the skills to trust to build trusting relationships with other people or something like that it's like or that i can trust myself enough to like to handle myself in the ways that are appropriate and respectful and nice with people to get better relationships but if i don't trust myself then i'm like questioning every thing i'm saying and then everything that they're put sending back is also me questioning well is that something because of what i kind of the energy i put out into the into the relationship like um not that that's clarifying much but uh, i like i like just i kind of just like like just trust and like i don't know trusting that word (laughs) trust Um, and trust trust and trust there we go there we got it we got it um cool well thank you so much for your honesty and your insights um and also sharing your book with us um it's been a you know heavy conversation on multiple levels but it's been really fun yeah thank you thanks for uh you know humoring us with our weird very layered questions that (laughs) some of them some of which were not even questions at all (laughs) no it's great it's really nice to have this conversation and like like i said I, i really appreciate what you guys are doing in this space so yeah 